What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another accredited episode of the Core Consults RX podcast. What's going on, everybody? Cole, Good. AJ. It's kind of toasty in here. It is, I know. Is it the lights? Uh, it's partly that and partly uh, an issue with thermostat slash AC up on this floor. Oh, really? Yes. Because I know that you generally keep your house extremely cold. I do. So my... my uh, is it the dampers? I, I don't know what it is. I I, I uh, just know that it's definitely hotter up here than it is well, downstairs. We, we had the similar issue over the winter um, where we have the dual thermostat. Do mm-hmm. you all have that? Right. Yeah, yeah. So you can control the top or yep. the bottom. Um, and it, it turns out our dampers were getting stuck. And so basically the, 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 it was only, the heat was only going upstairs and not downstairs. Mm-hmm. And they had to go up there and it's a very expensive fix. So awesome. I didn't do that. They just jammed them open. So oh, cool. there's just no dual control anymore. Ooh. That could be what's going on. Maybe. The the thermostat that we had, that Nest yeah. thermostat thing, I think it's also having a problem holding a charge, too, because, like, you can, like, we, we'll take it off and, and, and plug it in and charge it up, but the battery, and, like, I guess always presumed those just plug into a power line. So that's what I thought, too, um, because I, I assumed that, <laughs> Until like... Until it died. Well, yeah, because then there was, like, and then I noticed there's a, like, a charging port, and I'm like, Google can't, hasn't been able to figure out how to make this charge off the wall, but I don't know. Whatever. Huh. I didn't do any research. I just thought it looked cool <laughs> like when I got it. But anyways, we're not talking about thermostats or AC units tonight. And uh, if we're watching you know, live, we're going to try not to be sweaty up here. But uh, we're actually going to be talking about uh, the eyes tonight. We're going to be going over glaucoma. Um, primarily, get it, primarily, focused on primary open angle glaucoma. Um, but we'll also touch on... Um, angle closure glaucoma as well uh, towards the end, but we're going to do a rundown of all the medications, talk about any updates, um, you know, for new meds and things of that nature that uh, maybe we haven't talked about previously. Mm-hmm. So I think we've covered this and it's been a while. Yeah, it's been like four years. Has it been that long? Mm-hmm. Okay. So to hopefully some new stuff. Maybe three. And um, and who knows what we were talking about back then anyway. Who it knows probably, what we were saying? It was probably nonsense. <laughs> Don't but, go listen to those yeah, episodes. Oof, they're probably a train wreck. <laughs> But uh, we're gonna. This is an accredited episode, thanks to our friends over at FreeCE.com. And so, for those of you who are members of the website and uh, are a gold or platinum member, um, so basically have unlimited access to all of their content, uh, you can get access to our accredited episodes and the credit that come along with those for as part of your membership. So um, once you're done listening to the podcast, at some point during the episode, we're going to give you a super secret password. Take that password after you've listened to the episode, go to FreeCE's website uh, and use that to access the post-activity test. Past that, you get your one-hour continuing education credit for pharmacists and nurses, and then you go on about your merry way. I kind of like this the super secret password thing. Yeah, it's almost like we're on Door of the Explorer, and you're going to find it later on. But you know, is I, that a, is that an integral part of Door of the Explorer? They have passwords. You know, they just re- they, they foreshadow things to come. But I will say <laughs> that what um, they foreshadow has <laughs> a very very intense look at Door what, of the Explorer. Vamanos. <laughs> what it reminds me of is um, what I used to really bug me in lectures when professors professors were lecturing is they would start to kind of talk about something and they would say, "But we'll get to that." later on and i don't know why it would stress me out like oh this this lecture's gonna be why'd forever you men- yeah like why'd, why'd you, you even mention it, mention it? We're, we're not gonna talk about it for 45 minutes i'll even bring it up that's interesting yeah i, I feel know. like i do that sometimes like we're gonna we call, do that all the time we're gonna talk about that in a little bit we do and i i, I, tr- I actually am very cognizant of that and um 
maybe I'll try to cut down on it. But and, we clearly do it with a super secret password. And and yet, this is the first time you've ever warned me about it. 100, 220 A lot of things happen in. up here that just, don't come out of my mouth, and that's for the best. We're supposed to be a team, but okay, <laughs> that's fine. Just let me put people in suspense for no reason. <laughs> it's causing anxiety everywhere. Maybe it's just me. <laughs> so we're going to be talking about glaucoma, and uh, make sure you get your credit for those of you who are members. Um, and if you're not, definitely check out their website and look at all the content they have available. Definitely worth uh, the, the annual fee to, to get um, access to all that and become a member. So thanks to FreeC for continuing to partner with us. Uh, let's uh, let's jump into this. Where do you guys want to kind of start? Just some basic background information? Yeah. So we're going to do some, some background on what glaucoma is and why it happens with... Um, one of the primary things being intraocular pressure, but that not being the only factor responsible for the development and progression of glaucoma. Um, there's other things that contribute, like a decrease or dysregulated blood flow leading to ischemia, affecting the optic nerve, um, autoimmune reactions, excitotoxicity, things of that nature. Um, I feel like the majority of the drugs, if not all the drugs, are going to be related to pressure. Yeah, right. pretty much, or, or yeah, re- relieving that pressure. They might come about it by different mechanisms, right. but yes, their goal is relieving the intraocular pressure. Um, eventually, what happens is um, this causes apoptosis of the retinal ganglion cells, and that leads to axonal degeneration. The end result can be permanent loss of vision, and we'll kind of talk about how um, that can be progressive, or in certain cases, can be more acute. Yeah, look at that. It's reference what we're going to talk about later. Unbelievable. You're such a hypocrite. <laughs> it's a complete hypocrite. Unbelievable. So yeah, It'll be like two minutes before we talk about it. All right, cool. All right, that's not too bad. Yeah. We'll let that slide. Yeah. So we do have ways of measuring the intraocular pressure, and um, so you, we can kind of determine what a normal range is or when it's too high or too low, that sort of thing. So a normal range is 12 to 21 millimeters of mercury. Um, a patient can have elevated intraocular pressure without having visual field loss. Um some patients don't experience damage even at intraocular pressures greater than 21 millimeters of mercury. Uh, that would be considered ocular hypertension. Some patients have pressures 20 to 30 millimeters of mercury in that range for years before it progresses to having visual field loss. Um, so as you can imagine, most people probably don't know that they have it unless it's, it's specifically identified um, or they start having visual field loss. Um, Primary open angle glaucoma, uh, like Mike mentioned, we'll mostly be talking about that because most of the drugs are related to that, um, is glaucoma in the presence of open anterior chamber angles. So increased intraocular pressure can be due to aqueous production, aqueous outflow, or anatomic um, and physiologic features of the trabecular meshwork um, and other outflow structures that are, are causing a buildup. Like I said, it's usually silent, um, usually progressive which leads to it being one of the leading preventable causes of blindness in the world. Yeah. All right. So we'll hop a little deeper into primary open angle glaucoma. Um, so there are some medications that can increase intraocular pressure. Um, and so you'd want to monitor for this if a patient has glaucoma and they're also taking one of these, especially if you're having trouble getting it under control. Anticholinergics, um, cough and cold meds, um, ophthalmic and systemic corticosteroids, and then Topamax, Topiramate, which I don't think a lot of people think about, um, usually associated with the cognitive issues and maybe even kidney stones, but not usually with um, glaucoma. Uh, so the goal of treatment with glaucoma, decreasing aqueous humor production, and then increasing aqueous humor 
outflow. So you'll see that the majority of the drugs that we're going to talk about, the mechanism is ultimately doing one of those two things. The, the topical, uh, you know, ophthalmic steroids, I think is an interesting one because I know that there's a, there's a lot of, I guess, debate on, you know, giving a, an eye drop for conjunctivitis or something like that that has a steroid kind of built into it and whether mm-hmm. to, when to hold off on that. But it's interesting that someone who has, you know, issues with glaucoma or, you know, ocular hypertension or whatever, that giving something just like that can can cause a problem. That's definitely yeah. something we don't think about a lot of times. No. Or anticholinergic. I mean, that's, you know, antihistamines in general. There's so many different things that can lead to And a lot to of the over-the-counter eye drops have antihistamines yeah. in them, right? So, well, like, yeah, I mean, the ones that are, you know, made for specifically like red eye and stuff yeah. like that. It's, yeah, it's uh, something that I think, uh, at least in my, I guess, experience, I feel that I haven't usually, don't hone in on necessarily when I'm looking at a patient's chart. Yeah, there's some disease states where, you know, you don't have to worry too much about over-the-counter meds, but a number of these can be gotten over the counter. So another good reason to check them during your med recs. There you go. All right, guys. Yeah, and um, like Cole mentioned, you know, as far as like the the goals of, of treatment and, and, and whatnot, as far as reducing the, the progression and whatnot, but uh, one of the big kind of barriers to them meeting their goals and, and, and preventing the, the further progression of their glaucoma is poor adherence or non-adherence, um, depending on which you know, study and um, reference you're looking at. Uh, anywhere from 25 to 60% of glaucoma patients report either poor adherence, if not complete non-adherence to their regimen. Um, and then a large percentage of patients uh, do tend to, f- to fail the, um, the medication, not because they're not taking it, but because they are not uh, using the topical application of the eye drop correctly. Right. So um, just to review very briefly, um, but something called the eyelid closure and nasolacrimal occlusion technique. Um, no, I did not name this myself. <laughs> it's very uh, catchy. Yeah, very. But uh, step one. Heck um, not. Yes. It could have had an acronym. Eknot. Missed opportunity. I'll tell you what. Wash and dry hands. You do not want to have filthy hands when you're handling your your, uh, ophthalmic drops. So I think we all know that. But just in case, uh, wash and dry hands. Shake the bottle um, if it contains a suspension, obviously. Um, Make sure those particles haven't settled. And then uh, with a forefinger, they want the patient to pull down the outer portion of the lower eyelid to form a quote-unquote pocket. Um, to receive the drop, catch the drop, whatever you want to say. And uh, then the patient should grasp the dropper uh, between the thumb and the fingers with the hand braced kind of against the cheek or, or the nose to kind of support and make sure there's no shaking and getting an accurate drop of that that one little <laughs> that one little drop. Um, and then leaning the... You uh, look like that guy who... Um, the dart throw. Yeah, the, or not the... You, like the salt. Oh, the salt guy. The salt guy. What a weird guy that guy is. I Just know. throwing salt down his arm. I'd be... <laughs> grossed out by that i think maybe i don't know um but uh it's, it's pretty cool <laughs> cut the meat yeah delicious meat but then you have to just roll the salt on your disgusting <laughs> arm for some reason anyways the uh the hands based the hand is braced against the the cheek and then the held uh, the head is held upward um place the dropper over the eye and then have the patient kind of look at the tip of the bottle just to kind of line it up and then have them look up and place a single drop in the eye. Um, the, the lid should 
be closed, you know, after that drop is, is uh, received, um, but don't have the patient like squeeze or rub, you know, their eyelids, um, but try to keep the eyes closed if possible for as long as five minutes after installation of the drop. Um, this can increase the ocular availability of the drug. Uh, it's going to help reduce systemic absorption as well. Um, so make, making sure, even if you don't go into that kind of detail, but just making sure the patient is, is familiar with how to administer the, the drops and following you know the technique properly so that it doesn't cause an issue. I think if we gave 10,000 patients a truth serum mm-hmm. and then had them um, take a survey to say, do you do each one of these steps when you administer an eye drop it would be 99 percent. oh yeah no there's no way so i can't recall having had to use an eye drop since maybe i was a kid until recently because i have a son in daycare who gets sick constantly mm-hmm. um and he got a eye conjunctivitis and then spread it to me because you know we, we cuddle and things and so mm-hmm. i got an eye conjunctivitis so i had to get an eye drop and um i wouldn't i, I did not review this beforehand and um you know, I guess I wasn't really thinking much about it. So I was not even close to doing this technique in any way, shape, or form. What was the Cole Swanson technique? Well, the Cole Swanson technique, most notably, so it says to place the dropper over your eye while looking at the tip of the bottle. That would freak me out. If I'm sitting there looking at the tip, I can probably already see a drop forming, right? It's about to bombard me straight in the middle of my eye. Now, it at least tell, it tells you to look up at the last second before dropping it in. But it's difficult just to make eye contact with that dropper, you know? See, I feel like I feel like it's it's more getting, like, you line it up, right? And then you can look away. It doesn't have to be the last no, second. That, that, no, that's exactly what it means. But um, even just looking straight at it would kind of Cole's give trying me, to time it. It would make me flinch. And so um, the Cole Swanson way was not necessarily to brace it, which I think would have been much more effective. But I would just pull it down with my opposite forefinger and then kind of hover it over. And I had like maybe 25% accuracy. It would hit me on the cheek, the nose, the the forehead. So I definitely recommend leaning that holding hand on your cheek or your nose and then tilting back. And then this last portion. The lids should be closed for five minutes after That's installation. That's happened zero times. Zero times. Nobody has ever put in an eye drop and they kept their eyes closed for five minutes. First you blink, 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 right? Um, right, you got to get it out of there. So if this is the proper technique, I'm sure that most people are not doing this. Um, good to be aware of and, and good to tell people about. But I don't yeah. know, five minutes with your eyes closed? Yeah, it's, it's a long time. It's a long you time. stuff to do. I mean, unless I'm going to go to sleep. Well, I think some of these are administered at bedtime for that reason. Well, then I'm going to have to zombie my way over to the light switch to turn it off afterwards. You know, I can't open my eyes. That is true. You're stuck there. You're stuck. <laughs> this is nonsense. Just disregard that entire thing. <laughs> That's my thoughts on this technique. I agree that this is what you should do, but it's... Uh, Seems like it's not. It's it's, it's excessive. It's a little a little much. I, 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 so this is a story. I'm pretty sure I've told this at least a long time ago on the podcast. But uh, I remember like vividly. I had this real bad eye infection when I was a kid, and um, my dad was frustrated because I was just batting the eye drop away. I was I was young, and um, we just would not uh, cooperate. It was just knocking the eye, you know, thing. And he's like, he's like, you guys, you gotta cure your eye of this infection, blah blah blah. I'm like, nope, I'm not putting liquid in my eyes. That's how people go blind. <laughs> and uh, my dad, my dad, uh, and we've joked about this, so he he's not gonna care that I'm telling the story because he would feel bad about it now. But uh, uh, we've uh, he was basically like, if you don't get this in your eye, like you're gonna go blind. <laughs> that <laughs> that whole like '90s parenting, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, it, I was like, wait, blind? I was like, holy cow! And then and I still was not cooperating. So he's like, all right, I guess you're just gonna have to be blind. And he just like started walking away. And I remember being like. Oh no, I can't go blind. And they're like, wait, dad. 
he's like yeah that probably wasn't the best way of handling that back then <laughs> i mean i can remember when um my little sister needed her antibiotics was probably augmenting or whatever she might have been three or four and she would not let you administer it so it was a four-person situation to hold down each limb to, to give oh my her gosh so i'm surprised that he didn't resort to that maybe your brothers weren't you know you're the oldest so oh, i guess yeah, they were too young by a lot yeah they weren't born yet Oh, really? Yeah, I was the only one back then. I didn't realize you were that far from him. I'm like seven years older than one and 11 old. from the other. I'm wow. so old. Wow. I'm half, or AJ's half my age. It's crazy. So old. I'm just kidding. That's not true. I was about to say. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, AJ is the same age as my youngest brother, though, which is weird. That yeah, is weird. So, but um, uh, anyways, that's enough well, personal stories. Sorry good about stories that. about eye drops. I'm yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. I'm sure everybody's got their own. <laughs> yeah. So hopping <laughs> Send in. Send them in to us. Yeah, let us know email. and we'll read them live on air. <laughs> um. So hopping into the prostaglandin analogs, uh, which you'll all be probably very familiar with these very common medications. Um, uh, Bimatoprost is Lumigan. Latanoprost has uh, multiple uh, brand names, Zalatan and Lyuse, and we'll kind of explain the differences. Travaprost is Travatanzi. Latanoprostine Bunod is Visalta. And then Taflaprost is Zioptan. So we mentioned a couple of mechanisms that we're kind of going for for treatment. So this is going to increase the outflow of the aqueous humor, so kind of get rid of it to, to decrease the pressure via the uveoscleral pathway. Um, as far as which one to use and what might be most effective, there are some, um, some specific instances uh, that we'll kind of talk about. But bimatoprost may be slightly more effective in lowering pressure. Um, getting a larger percentage of patients to lower pressures and specifically for patients who are unresponsive to latanoprost, bimatoprost may be a good secondary option and they might be more effective in those patients. Um, and these are very commonly the first thing that you're going to try is a prostaglandin analog. Yeah, the, the prostaglandin analogs definitely have the most intraocular pressure lowering all over, you know, compared to the other agents, which so, and the convenient part is the once a day dosing is very nice because anytime you start racking up the number of times someone has to take something per day, adherence is Especially going to when you plummet. Have to spray liquid into your eyeball. Spray. That's such an aggressive way of describing <laughs> that. Just like a like a throat spray, but yeah. for your eye. Psst, just I have to, it. hang on one second. I have to take my glaucoma. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the uh, prostaglandin analogs, we, we typically think of them uh, as being. Like on average, about a 25 to 35% um, lowering of intraocular pressure kind of as a class effect. Obviously, like Cole mentioned, there's going to be some that are better than others. Um, and they are first line, but they're not without, you know, their warnings and precautions. Uh, so prostaglandin-associated periorbitopathy um, is potentially uh, something that can happen with long-term use of these. Um, so that can include like the darkening of the iris um, or even the eyelid skin itself. Um, and it will increase the, the length and number of eyelashes, which, you know, depending on your uh, cosmetic uh, wants and needs, that may be great. It may be weird, um, but that's uh, to each his own. Um, as far as the eye color changes and whatnot, you know, if somebody who has, you know, very light colored eyes, um, it, it's going to potentially darken and, you know, almost like cause like a browning uh, coloration to the iris potentially. So those nice blue eyes might get uh, uh I wonder what happens changed. when your eyes are already brown. I think they just can darken uh, 
like increases it makes them even darker potentially which you know it yeah. probably would be a lot less noticeable in patients that already have pretty dark eyes mine are just brown my wife's are like hazel but my sons are blue I don't know where he gets them from. My sons are blue, too. I do have some family members, but I feel like I never even thought about the color of anybody's eyes until everybody was talking about how he has blue eyes. I and know. I'm like, and they're like, where'd they get them from? And like, you're like, I don't know. hmm. I guess I'll call all my relatives. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they can actually darken as he gets older. Yeah. My um, my nieces were bright blue, and then she hit 18 months, and they turned like gray. Hmm. Weird. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe she's wearing special contacts. I'm sure that's what it is. It might. You never know. <laughs> the, but, uh, you know, the coloration change of the iris is definitely something to be mindful of. And then um, if the patient were to potentially, you know, get some kind of like contamination of the multi-dose solutions, um, there is always that risk of bacterial keratitis, uh, which can be obviously threatening to your vision as well. Um, and, and so it's something that, you know, you want to warn patients to try to keep the, you know, the contact of the, the dropper away from anything that could potentially contaminate it. Um, obviously, especially if they have some kind of infection or something along those lines. And uh, the preservative that's in most of these to, to keep you know, bacteria from growing is um, that the benzyl conium chloride, they're back. Um, it's what's in most of the prostaglandin analogs uh, is the, as the preservative of choice. It's, when it's in a lot of different medications, really. Um, over time, that can basically lead to chronic inflammation and worsening of, like, dry eye uh, disease if that's if there's also an underlying case of that or it can cause just chronic dry eyes um, over time and so the chronic inflammation and there's even you know um, if a patient's wearing contact lenses and you're administering drops that have that preservative it can absorb into the contact lens as well and destroy that so obviously making sure that uh, patients who do wear contact lens um, lenses take off their contacts and then wait at least 15 minutes after they apply the drops before they put those uh, the lenses back in their eyes. Um, if they're going to bed, then they probably don't have to worry about that. But for these, the drops that we're going to talk about later on that have multiple doses throughout the day, um, that can be an issue. Now, for patients who have like a past allergic reaction to that um, back preservative, or in patients who do have like dry eye disease, then you want to ideally avoid um, that particular. Uh, preservative. So there are a couple different options. You can go with something like Traviton Z, um, which does not contain back specifically. If, if that's if there's an allergy component to it, um, it has an alternative uh, preservative. And then that um, latanoprost formulation, the um, Lyosa that Cole had mentioned, that is uh, fairly new. I want to say within the last couple months it's been approved. And it is latanoprost, the same formulation concentration, except it's preservative-free. So it is available now without that back preservative. And then uh, the Talfoprost or Zyoptan is a single-use vial. So you're opening a new vial every time you're administering a drop, so there's no preservative, obviously, in that because you're throwing the whole thing away when you're done. Um, It's interesting that because I actually had a patient uh, today that I was working with that is having to use Restasis for a chronic eye uh, or for chronic dry eye mm-hmm. because they're having to apply so many different ophthalmic drops for glaucoma. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. And uh, it had dry eye previously, but it's gotten progressively worse, and all of the eye drops they're administering have that preservative. Yeah. So um, I brought up the <laughs> Lyuza, and I don't even know if it's uh, something I can officially order yet from a pharmacy, but um, just gave them a heads up that maybe we, when it is available, we're going to look at potentially switching it up and seeing if that cuts down on some of that irritation. Which- or stasis was traditionally the single dose um, 
guess they're ampules, plastic thingies. They but were, there, yeah. there is a Restasis multi-dose now. I don't yeah. know if it has back in it or not. It is preservative-free, believe it or not. They, the they, they figured out how to do it preservative-free. That's like one of their big claims to fame with Restasis. Yeah, because I, uh, I remember saying it had to have a preservative one time. I think, well, it was to my PA students maybe, and mm-hmm. one of them had the power of Google and was like, <laughs> wrong. <laughs> it's like, oh. you love students. No, it's good. It keeps me on my toes. But yeah, that's uh, definitely um, the preservative issue, something that I feel like doesn't really get talked about very much, but it is definitely something to keep in mind. Yeah. So there are other adverse effects associated with prostaglandin analogs that aren't necessarily related to the um, preservatives. So blurred vision can happen. It's a, it's a night drop. Um, topical irritation stinging sensation um, it can cause the sensation of having kind of a foreign body in your eye and um, mike mentioned the, the increased pigmentation risk so he mentioned there once a day so it's usually just one drop at bedtime so my recommendation is have your light switch close drop it close your eyes switch the light go straight to sleep um, and he also mentioned they can help your eyelashes grow so there is a branded Bimatoprost um, solution, Latisse, that's branded specifically for um, increasing the growth of the eyelashes. Um, just with my history with it, I remember it rarely would be covered by insurance because they see it as cosmetic. So um, not incredibly expensive if you, you want it for cosmetic reasons, but um, definitely not just like a $10 copay type of deal. Um, of course, you wouldn't want to use it in patients who are already taking a different prostaglandin analog for glaucoma uh, because this would be a, a, a duplicate. Um, apply the medication by drawing a line along the skin on the top of the eyelid only, so where the um, eyelashes are, so you don't have to do that whole um, pocket mm-hmm. administration situation. And then you can remove the excess if it's dripping by blotting with a tissue or a cotton pad with Latisse. So speaking of these prostaglandin and lugs, you know, when it comes to like compounded medications, have you ever seen latanoprost used for hair loss? I've not. I saw a, uh, like, I was getting a list of some compounded medication options that one of these big compounding pharmacies mm-hmm. uh, has available. And they have, in their uh, male pattern baldness section, they had, like, a compounded shampoo that had, like, um, the finasteride, it had minoxidil, like, the standard stuff. And then it also had, I want to say, it had ketoconazole, which is pretty common as well. And then um, one of the retinoid gases, either tretinoin or Tazerac, I can't remember. Um, and then it also has latanoprost in it. Interesting. And I was like, huh, that's that's one I actually wouldn't have thought of. The other ones make total sense, but and it makes sense to, I guess, try it. I, don't I know guess it makes you wonder. data, but. We know that they increase eyelash growth because you put them on the eye. But if you put it somewhere else. Maybe like, you get eyelashes on your head. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you never know. I haven't tried it. Have you, AJ? No, not yet. All right. Well, I'm we, looking up the link right now. Or Good. just general hair growth. Oh, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, so, that's true, too. You know, there, I know some people who are disappointed in the thickness of their eyebrows, so I wonder if you could market it for eyebrow growth. It's a good thing. We, we, we might be onto something. We might. Well, they obviously were because they made a shampoo out of it. Well, yeah. Okay. So they beat us to it so this one time. It's very interesting. I, yeah. I, 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 I thought that thought was too. That. I hadn't I hadn't heard that in that particular. As you get older, you start to really hone in on these male pattern baldness uh, treatments. <laughs> when you start it to sounds look, much more interesting to you. <laughs> yeah. When you start to look 10 years older than you actually are because yeah. of your male pattern baldness, it's rough. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, definitely something to, to keep in mind for those of you who are dealing with compounding pharmacies or trying to start a business maybe, but, <laughs> but, um, one thing, uh, I, I had a little blurb in here about, um, this was basically a, just an article from 2021, um, looking at that, um, latanoprostine, um, that Cole had mentioned as well. It's one of the newer prostaglandins on the market. And um, they were looking at uh, the efficacy for the treatment of open angle glaucoma or ocular hypertension. 
and it was a systematic review um, that can, included 106 trials. And uh, they were looking at basically latanoprostine versus other medications and um, their ability to lower intraocular pressure. And uh, latanoprostine was um, numerically better than latanoprost and um, tafloprost. Similar to bimatoprost, which is our kind of top dog when we're thinking of the intraocular pressure lowering ability. Um, however, it was slightly worse than the higher concentration of bimatoprost, the 0.03%. So it was similar to the 0.01, less than 0.03. So bimatoprost, still on top, baby. Still on top. You can't beat it. You got, you got me with that eyelashes on your head thing. It's I was wondering why you're laughing. I'm like, I don't even think I said anything funny this time. Like, I'm like looking, rereading what I'm looking at because I'm like, maybe I'm saying something wrong. Cole's thing no, about the eyelashes. You got me. That would be funny, though, if you just had these little tiny, very distinct eyelashes. <laughs> <laughs> Sir, why do you have that? <laughs> very distressing. Um, okay, so there is one new drug um, that was approved. Uh, it's actually, a new uh, class, really, for first in class and only in class, I believe, that came out in September 2022. Branded as Omlanti, and the generic is Omidenepag isopropyl ophthalmic solution. Um, so it is a selective E-prostanoid subtype 2, designated as EP2, receptor agonist, which will decrease intraocular pressure, but they don't really understand the mechanism. So we talked about those two, um, um, and we talked about the prostaglandins kind of getting rid of some of the aqueous humor. So they don't really understand why this helps, but it does. It's also once daily in the evening, um, has a similar effect on pressure as far as lowering goes compared to the prostaglandins, which is good, um, and has been shown to be effective in patients that were um, either a non-responder to latanoprost or just didn't receive an adequate response. Um, but it's only been studied in combination with timolol, so with another beta blocker that we're about to talk about. It does contain benzalconium chloride as the preservative, so take note of that. Um, it has a few adverse effects to be aware of, ocular inflammation, conjunctival hyperemia, corneal thickening, macular edema, and cystoid macular edema. And that's Omlanti. I'm wondering, because I, I didn't see anything in the literature as far as like this being used in combination with a, a traditional prostaglandin, and I would imagine that you, it wouldn't make sense to do that. Yeah. Um, but I am kind of wondering, I mean, since this it's is binding, yeah, yeah, it is slightly different. This one's obviously a lot more selective to that specific receptor. And it's not an analog itself. It's just activating the receptor. I wouldn't be surprised if somebody throws it in there off-label for somebody who's pretty refractory to say, like, let's just add on a, a Just to see what happens. See what happens. I, I'd be curious to see but, uh, if there yeah. would be any benefit to that. I uh, doubt it would be standard. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, it's still only been, like Cole said, and studied with Timolol as a combo. But time will tell. This came out, what, September of 2022. Yep. So it's fairly, fairly new. Yep. But I kind of think of this as being, like, another potential... I guess potential first line since it did show a good response to patients who didn't respond to latanoprost. Mm -hmm. I feel like this is another potential first line option like the prostaglandins, but I wouldn't say it's an add-on at sure. this point until we have more data that justifies that. Yeah. Jump into beta blockers next. Yeah. So uh, beta blockers, and we're talking obviously 
ophthalmic beta blockers, not systemic beta blockers, although you will see that we get some systemic response. But uh, it's the beta blockers that are widely used. Timolol is probably the, the most commonly used uh, ophthalmic beta blocker. Uh, it has a few different formulations. Um, Timoptic is usually the uh, the brand name that you'll see. There's also a uh, Timolol gel-forming um what is it? G gel forming solution. Solution, yeah, something like that. Um, G, GFS basically, uh, it's just another formulation of still the active ingredient. A couple different um, concentrations of it, and there's also uh, one called um, Betaxolol, and then Levobunolol is another one uh, that's, that I've seen a couple times. But I feel like the vast majority of patients, at least in my limited experience, uh, it's Timolol is what you usually see. The uh, the Levobunolol is is one that is kind of a unique, I guess, member of this class because it has additional alpha endogenic effects as well. So it seems to be the most um, effective beta blocker as far as lowering intraocular pressure. Um, kind of like bimatoprost is the most effective prostaglandin. Um, this would be the most effective beta blocker, even though it's not really used as as often, um, but it's still not as effective as bimatoprost because they've they've looked at that. So everybody's trying to knock bimatoprost off its its. Uh, Platform, it's it's high horse, if you will. No one's coming close. It's hard being king. It's got a really high horse. AJ, what'd you say? It's hard being king. It is. It's true. It's a good point. Everybody's coming for you. Yeah, but uh, from a mechanism of action standpoint, these are basically reducing the production of aqueous humor, um, and we expect a decrease in intraocular pressure um, around twenty twenty two percent from from the patient's baseline. And these can be another good first-line option potentially if, you know, the patient uh, is not a candidate for a prostaglandin for whatever reason. Um, these can be uh, substitution. Yeah, and they do have some contraindications, um, kind of similar to what you would think of with an oral beta blocker because they do have a little bit of systemic absorption. So if they have sinus bradycardia, second and third degree heart block, um, then you would want to avoid them unless they have a pacemaker for the heart block. Um, they can cause burning, stinging, bradycardia because they have some systemic absorption and also bronchospasm. All are non-selective beta blockers except for betaxolol, which is um, betoptic, bad optic. Mm -hmm. um, betaxolol is less likely to cause worsening of COPD because of that, uh, worsening asthma, chronic bronchitis, emphysema, because it's it's more it's, selective. Yeah, selective. So it's not going to interact with the, I guess, the beta receptors in the lungs. The, the patient's COPD medications and asthma medications are going to work more effectively. Right. I think, yeah, that's, that's the only one that's like that. It's kind of interesting. It is interesting. Have you seen that ever prescribed? Like when no. you were dispensing or anything? I think I I've seen it like one time. I have not. Um, we mentioned that the prostaglandin analogs are once daily, as is the newer drug, but these are... Um, twice daily, except for Timoptic XE and the Timolol gel-forming solution, uh, which are dosed once daily, which is more convenient. Look at that, gel-forming solution. Nailed it. Good good stuff. All right, so that's beta blockers. Um, let's talk about the alpha-2 agonists is our next class that we'll, we'll go over. So bromonidine, I would say, is probably the most common uh, medication used in this class. There's also um, apriclonidine as well. And uh, there's an OTC formulation of bromonidine now um, called Lumify, Lumify, which is actually approved for ocular redness. And I've seen Lumify. I guess I didn't recognize that it was bromonidine. Yeah, but that's the active ingredient, which I thought was really kind of odd. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, Lumify apparently is uh, was approved for that indication, um, but Alpha Gan P is the is the brand name available for um, 
bromonidine that's been used in glaucoma treatment for some time now. Yeah. Um, they, they're, all of these are working to increase the aqueous outflow and reduces the aqueous humor production in the first place. Uh, they, th- there is a warning that it can potentially cause some CNS depression because you will still get some systemic absorption. And really, we should have mentioned that too, which you kind of did with the side effects, but with the beta blockers as well, the, the risk of hypotension and stuff, you, you don't really think of an eye drop as causing systemic effects, but it can make a pretty big impact. Yeah. Um, administering a, a, an ophthalmic drop from a systemic standpoint. So if they're on other medications, they can be CNS depression or depressants or, you know, other things like that. Then basically there's just something to keep an eye out for and, and know that just because it's ophthalmic does not mean it's going to only stay localized. Right. Some common side effects uh, to be aware of with these alphagenic alpha-2 agonists um, would be sedation, uh, burning sensation after administration, and then it can cause some dry mouth, dry nose. Um, I guess if somebody has a history of nosebleeds, things like that, uh, it could potentially be a problem. And even more inconveniently, they're dosed three times daily. Mm -hmm. Um, Older versions do contain benzalkonium chloride. Uh, brand Alphagen P has a preservative called Purite that has very broad antimicrobial activity, even at very low concentrations, and that replaced the benzalkonium chloride as the preservative. The generic version of bromonidine has the preservative Polyquad, um, which we referenced before and mm-hmm. some other, something else, I think. Probably um, for... Was it know. a vaccine or something? Polyquad? Yeah, I, I might be making that up. I mean, we've definitely talked about it when we mentioned glaucoma way back when. Maybe, maybe. But, um, but it's a detergent-type preservative derived from benzalkonium chloride. Much less harmful than benzalkonium chloride, but can uh, potentially reduce the density of conjunctival goblet cells uh, and decrease aqueous tear film production. Yeah, and it's... I will say this is one of those weird situations where um, the brand name is actually recommended sometimes over generic because that Purite being a pr- proprietary you know, um, preservative, preservative uh, is owned by the, the company that owns the rights to the original Alphagan P. Interesting. So the generics have to use that polyquad. And I've actually had a few patients who were on this you know, for chronically that their ophthalmologist was like, absolutely only brand name because huh. the preservative that replaced back in the original brand name is like much much better tolerated i guess and that's looks, so funny it's our preservative you can't use it yeah so yeah it's pretty pure right we have the pure rights the pure right yeah exactly but um it's it's one of those times where I, it is uh it is important to, to know that distinction because there are some ophthalmologists that are very specific about that yeah. it's one of those situations you know how like when you first especially when you first graduate and yeah. it happens for everybody you know throughout career as well but right. there's always that moment where you say something that you're very confident in yeah. yourself and then you realize especially looking back like years later and you go right. oh that's embarrassing like we kind of roll our eyes at people who want the brain to the generic and it's like the generics the same right as the brand, I, I literally told somebody there's no there, generics are always the same blah 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 yeah. blah and I was very confident in my answer and then he's like I, I don't know the ophthalmologist really told me not to and I was kind of like yeah, they probably work for the company or something yeah. <laughs> and uh it's a conspiracy it's a conspiracy and then I, look, I remember looking up and been like oh I'm yeah. stupid now there's a number of situations I have been surprised um especially when something goes from brand to generic you do see that's that's kind of when it really comes out. Usually, it's usually related to some sort of adverse effect, but there are some who don't have as good responses and blah blah blah. Yeah, so I, I definitely uh, the moral of that story though is don't beat yourself up when you say something real dumb. It's inevitable. Yes, it's going to happen. But there also the other moral is just don't think you know everything. 
Yeah, that's a good moral too. Yeah, that's <laughs> maybe a better one. <laughs> that's probably a better one. Yeah, don't be cocky and think that you know everything already because you don't. No, that's good. That's a better moral. I like that. They're both good morals. That's why we keep. That's why we keep you around, Cole, because yeah. you're you think of stuff like that for sure. The moral guy. Um, carbonic okay. anhydrase inhibitors. Yeah, so um, these are very familiar probably to you as well. So carbonic anhydrase inhibitors would be dorsolamide, which is branded as Trusopt, benzolamide branded as Azopt, and then a couple of combinations. Cosopt is dorsolamide plus timolol. Zimbrenza is brenzolamide plus bromonidine. Um, but what the carbonic anhydrase inhibitors do is reduce aqueous humor production. So the prostaglandin analogs are going to get them out of there. The carbonic anhydrase inhibitors are going to prevent more um, aqueous production. Um, a warning in sulfonamide allergies. I believe they have a sulfamoiety in there, mm-hmm. I presume. Yeah. Um, and um, they can also cause systemic exposure as well, so be aware of that. And uh, it's one of those things where, usually speaking, when someone says, I have a sulfa allergy, usually it's back from that was the culprit initially, and, and then they just say sulfa for then on out. So it's specifically a sulfonamide allergy that the, this would cause an issue with. And in Bactrim, usually the allergy is a sulfonamide aralamine, like that whole group that's causing the allergy so but it you know in the case of an eye obviously you don't want to instill anything that could potentially have a side effect but i want to be more cautious reaction. than normal yeah right. that would be an annoying to have to deal with your eye swells up <laughs> but uh <laughs> what was that dumb movie um with the thing was like will smith or something where he, he did something his eye was enormous his lips were huge from some allergic reaction i know what you're talking about yeah was remember. it Hancock? Uh, Han- no, no, no 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 that's that's the superhero hitch. one hitch. hitch that's what it is Hancock, he did not have an allergic reaction. He could fly like Superman in that movie. <laughs> Hitch was with, um, was with, uh, God, what's his name? Paul Blart. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I can't think of his Kevin name. James. Kevin James. Yeah. Kevin James. That's true. Good movie. He's great. I think he's, he's a funny dude. Um, but yeah, so definitely just be cautious there and if take it maybe a little bit more seriously than you would sometimes with seeing a bathroom allergy. I feel like I'm always telling students, like, if, just because they have an allergy to bathroom doesn't mean you can't be on a sulfonylurea or something like that. This time it may be a little bit more yeah. impactful. Yeah. Um, so carbonic anhydrase inhibitor, uh, from an adverse effect standpoint, um, usually the irritation um, after administration, so some burning sensation, um, blurred vision can happen for a short period of time, um, and it can lead to dry eyes as well uh, over time. So, again, kind of keeping that comorbidity um, at least in mind that that could potentially be a problem. Um, and then if the patient is, has CKD um, and so they're on dorsalamide, even though, again, we don't typically think of systemic effects, um, technically speaking, you're not supposed to give dorsalamide in patients that have a creatinine clearance less than 30 mils per minute. Um, so that's kind of an interesting little caveat. Um, I, I definitely, if I'm being totally honest with myself, I can't say that I would... <laughs> would jump at a uh, like jump out of like okay let me check the renal function real quick before we administer these side drops so keep that in mind and then um there's also the oral option as well in the same class which i'm sure all of you are familiar with acetazolamide um typically you know this is not used from a chronic standpoint where it's given you know um, in place of one of the ophthalmic versions um it's going to be saved if you're going to use this in glaucoma it's usually saved for um, an acute closed angle glaucoma um, either given like as an iv formulation or oral um, just to kind of uh, help maintain the intraocular pressure while the patient's getting to 
their ophthalmology consult as fast as possible. Um, it also contains a sulfonamide group, so that same issue with the allergy still pertains to that. Um, so kind of keep that in mind. But um, we'll talk a little, we'll touch on that one again when we get to the angle closure. But cetazolamide is, is uh, in that same class. Sure. So those are the main ones that you're probably going to recognize. There are a few others that we'll talk about. Before we do that, do you want to give the super secret password? Yeah, I'm so glad you reminded me because, yes, we do need to give that. So the password is going to be OCULAR. So OCULAR, all caps, put that in. You get full access to the riveting 10-question exam. O-C-U-L-A-R? A-R. A-R. Good. Just spelled it for you. Thank you. You're welcome. All all caps. Um, we have so we like, that's literally one of our main things that we start doing before we record is we go what's the password, what's the password? <laughs> and, and then and luckily then, Cole remembered to even to even try yeah try to we need say, to send a silent alarm on our watch or something like that I feel like that should be AJ's responsibility to remind us mm. when we're missing some catastrophic uh, yes. detail but it does feel like an AJ it's thing. on the list yeah <laughs> on the list. AJ TikTok is it's not important right now <laughs> I need you focused. Um, okay, so some of these other medications that we can use, cholinergics um, or myotics, um, so that would be like pilocarpine, carbacol. Um, they increase aqueous humor outflow as well, like the prostaglandin analogs. They can cause um, some adverse effects, corneal clouding, pupil constriction, leading to poor night vision. Whenever I, whenever I hear of poor night vision, I always think of it can cause the night blindness. Um, <laughs> it's from friends that um, Ross, something Ross said. We've about, done a lot of movie quotes and show quotes. Something Ross said about touching the um, the um, newspapers and the uh, graphite on them or whatever. Causes, causes night the blind? night blindness. Oh. That's what he was saying. The and, night blindness. The I night like blindness. that. Anyways, hypotension, bronchospasm, abdominal cramps, um, and don't use in patients who have a history of retinal detachment or corneal abrasion as well. And uh, the other class, and I, I guess this technically wouldn't be kind of like just an outlier, but it's, it's a fairly new class, I guess. Um, but the Rho kinase inhibitor, um, so the, the main FDA-approved um, medication in this class is the um, Netasur, Netasur, Netarsidil. I, I can't pronounce words to save my life this episode. That's a tough one, though. Um, Netarsidil, um, which is the Ropressa. Um, there's also a combination product which has Natarsidil and Latanoprost in combo um, under the brand name uh, Rock Laton, which I think is a pretty awesome, <laughs> pretty awesome name. I like That's that one. Pretty sweet. Rock Laton. Rock Laton. Uh, so this is helping to increase aqueous humor outflow. Um, initial studies that were done uh, basically showed that Natarsidil is non-inferior to Timolol, so you know, maybe less effective than the prostaglandin analogs, but you, you know, kind of just as effective as our um, second, you know, in-line medication. Um, however, a 2022 um, systematic review showed that uh, natarsidil is probably inferior uh, to latanoprost and um, slightly inferior to timolol as well. So uh, it's one of those things that it's a newer medication. The cost could be potentially a factor. And so, um, Unfortunately, it's probably not going to be a new first, second line option. It's probably going to be further down, but it is a combo product available if, if you wanted to go this route. Um, some adverse effects to be aware of: uh, burning and you know eye pain after application is is uh, commonly reported. Um, conjunctival hemorrhage, uh, which is not not good, and then uh, conjunctival hyperemia, which is just excess uh, blood vessels in the you know, in the eye. Um, it does contain back as well. When you said Natarsidil, I thought of that that animal, um, 
that lives in cold water. It, it's like a seal with a unicorn horn. What's that thing called? <laughs> narwhal. 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 Are you sure? Yes. Look it up. Okay. Yes. That it's <laughs> it's it's that animal that like I thought was fake, but it's actually real. Narwhal. They should they should name a drug after that. I like it. I like how you mentioned it. You know how they have the unicorn hit? <laughs> the unicorn horn. It does. That's a long. Yeah, that's weird looking. Horn. That comes out of its lip or something. Is it? Yes. I feel like it's we should a, do. It's a mammal too. It's a mammal. Huh. And yeah, I'm telling you, it's Wait. like the horn goes through like through their skin. It's not like what you would imagine growing out. It's like it originates inside and then comes through. It's like their lip or something. It's actually a tooth. It's a tooth. Yes. It's one tooth. It's a large tooth. Yes. Wait, and, and why are we why are we saying it's a mammal? Like we're surprised that aren't sea lions sea mammals? But these are the deepest diving mammals that live in the coldest waters. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot. Listen, man, you're the only one that doesn't know about narwhals at this point. We could do a whole episode. Ne- on okay, it. first of all, neither one of you could even pronounce the name, so I feel like that's not true. <laughs> and Nicole thought it was a mythological creature on top of it, so that's that's also not fair. <laughs> How dare you exclude me from the Narwhal Club? Narwhals. I encourage everyone to watch a uh, documentary. They're very interesting. It's called um, a Christmas Story. <laughs> uh, so, um, in a lot of instances, there are a number of agents that are needed to maintain intraocular pressure. Usually, just one um, is not going to cut it. Uh, so, there was one study called the Ocular Hypertension Treatment Study. Uh, had about 1,600 patients. Over five years, around 40% of patients needed at least two drugs or more to reach their goal intraocular pressure, which in the study was 24 millimeters of mercury or less. Uh, There was another smaller study called the Collaborative Initial Glaucoma Treatment Study with 600 patients. By the second year, about 70% of patients needed at least two drugs uh, or more to reach their target pressure. So um, a prostaglandin plus a beta block or whatever, and that's why they also make the combination agents because that's so common. Yeah, it's. I think... And why that's important too is even if you're able to get away with monotherapy when you're first starting a patient off, I think it's important to kind of give them a, a heads up, so to speak, uh, and let them know that statistically speaking, as this as, as this goes on, progresses, like we are going to potentially need to add medications um, to that. And like Cole said, the combos come in, you know, come in handy when the patient's you know, only counting the physical number of medications, but giving them kind of a, a heads up that this is likely to require additional add-on therapy. Cause and like we've talked about before, anytime there's like a, like a, a lifetime of a, a life sentence, so to speak for medication, I feel like that's always automatically raises a little bit of um, poor adherence potentially. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, yeah I, I had a same patient that was on the restasis because of the eye drops long term. He basically was saying that, uh, do I even need to take these anymore? I mean, I feel like I've been on them for such a long time. So we had to talk about, you know, obviously keeping his eyes going forward and keeping them healthy. But, um, you know, on quite a bit and that can be alarming to someone who doesn't want to have, uh, doesn't want medications. Yeah, setting expectations. Yeah. Is important. Did you want to go through the algorithm? Do we have time for that? Or do you want to go straight to the closed angle? Um, I guess just real briefly for the algorithm, you know, starting therapy, like we've said a few times now, prostaglandin analog usually is going to be the first line option. Um, you could potentially use a beta blocker as well. Um, it, I mean, if, if you, you have to use an alternative like bromonidine if, that, if neither of one of those are options, but usually prostaglandin or beta blocker would be the first option to give, to start with, you know, a patient looking at the, the response after two to four week period. Um, if there's an inadequate response first kind of going through the, some of the standard, you know, um, 
compliance and, and making sure they're actually using it, making sure that they're uh, administering the drops correctly. Um, if if there's a you know a partial response um, at that point, you know you could consider adding a second line agent. Um, if there's been no response whatsoever, that's where you'd probably just want to stop whatever they had started on and just do. Um, a different you know, option uh, is monotherapy. And then uh, from there, another two to four weeks to kind of assess the response. Um, and again, if, if inadequate response to the monotherapy or the, the combo, um, you're kind of just moving down the list sort of in the, in the I guess, way that we've described the, the classes. So, um, you know, looking at like, bromonidine at that point, like the alpha agonist or um, carbonic anhydrous inhibitors possibly as well. Um, I, the, the row kinase inhibitors, I would say could also be considered in that third, fourth line treatment option. Um, but, uh, the cost is usually going to be an issue with that. Um, and then saving, uh, you know, some of like the, the pilocarpines and things like that more to basically last line. Um, the, some of the recommendations do say to consider, um, an oral carbonic anhydrase inhibitor in place of the topical ophthalmic carbonic anhydrase is one thing you could at least consider. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, again, that's usually saved for more of an emergency situation, but there are cases where you would, you would use that, but you're just basically adding on a different class as you go. Uh, and, um, the, the first two are the most important, I think, as far as the beta blocker and the prostaglandin, and then kind of, you can kind of pick and choose based on the patient's preference and comorbidities and whatnot from there. Right. Yep. So that's open angle glaucoma. There it is. So we'll end uh, briefly with um, primary angle closure glaucoma. Um, this is a big deal. Probably would consider it a medical emergency, I would say. Um, if this is identified, a patient should see an ophthalmologist within an hour of an acute attack. If longer than an hour, you, if, or if it's just going to take longer, then you might go ahead and start in pure treatment. Um, if the vision is normal, but other symptoms and signs suggest an acute angle closure attack, empiric treatment should only be given if the intraocular pressure is greater than 40 millimeters of mercury. Um, so you can see how that's a lot higher than kind of what we've been talking about the general ranges are. So a possible, possible regimen um, for empiric treatment, if you needed to do that, would be one drop of each of these drugs, which I'm about to mention, um, given one minute apart. Um, Timolol, 0.5%. Um, apraclonidine, 1%, pilocarpine, 2%, um, and then also give 500 milli, uh, milli, milligrams of acetazolamide orally or IV if that's available. Um, I feel like, the, I guess I'm trying to think of when this would pop up when you would have access to those things and you wouldn't be at an ophthalmologist, an optometrist, or an ER. Yeah, prob probably, or I guess maybe a clinic that had an in-house pharmacy. And I guess, some like, clinic... when would you identify this and then also have access to those drugs to give empirically? You know what I mean? Yeah. I'd have to imagine it's an ER or maybe probably. maybe an optometrist has the ability to have these things on hand for something like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure an optometrist would. But um, and, and, and I also want to point out, too, that this regimen that Cole is just kind of going off, there's others as well. So yes. this is not, like, set in stone. In fact, this is actually just, if you look at the... Uh, angle closure glaucoma section for up to date. This is what the authors listed as their preferred regimen, um, but there's other possibilities as well. Um, so I'm sure based on what is available and, and you know, if the, the clinic setting where you're seeing this type of situation potentially, I'm sure you would kind of have clinic use medications <sighs> available. But yeah, I, th I think um, it would be 
it would be tough to just have these and, and I, maybe even having the patient use their own at home medications that are in a similar class if possible and just administering them in this sequence as they're being sent to the ophthalmologist would be um, ideal but ultimately the the main purpose is to maintain eyesight as as, as good as you know as, as well as you can right. cool i keep my uh timolol drops right next to the narcan <laughs> yeah got just him. in case got them on hand just in case just, just in, in case, case you have a Acute primary ankle closure glaucoma crisis. Yeah, good to have. With no history whatsoever. <laughs> right, <laughs> just, just in case. Uh, there's also chronic ankle closure glaucoma, and in, in, in those cases, a lot of times, they might have to have surgeries. So laser, peripheral, iridotomy, mm. or various other surgeries um, to treat that. Yeah. Um, w- one thing I, I thought was kind of interesting, um, I don't, it doesn't quite apply, but it, one of the things that I really didn't think about, especially, you know, from a, I guess a non, um, dealing with this, like from, you know, a non-ophthalmology standpoint, you know, the post-op, um, like after a cataract surgery, uh, the, the post-op intraocular pressure increase that can happen. Um, they did a, a study that was published in the American Journal of Ophthalmology that was looking at, um, basically the effects of trivanoprost, timolol, and uh, brinzolamide and their ability to prevent post-op increases in intraocular pressure after specifically cataract surgery. And which really weird is topical brinzolamide was the most effective um, in minimizing that short-term increase uh, in intraocular pressure that was observed between four to eight hours after the um, the procedure. So I, and I, it probably has to do more so with the the kinetics of the eye drop and whatnot, and just that's probably why you have to dose it more frequently because the the it's got a quicker onset but shorter half life and all that good stuff. But um, I just thought it was kind of interesting how we typically would think of that as being like more third line for chronic use, but in the case of uh, an acute setting post op, um, that's the one that didn't, was was more effective than the other two options. So just thought in case you're really bored, just want to throw that in there for you guys. Nice. But uh, I think that's all we got on glaucoma, right? That's all I got, man. My um, computer just kicked me off. It's like upgrading something. So perfect. I have no more information. To well, give. that's <laughs> except for that's, some from my brain. That's well. I guess that ends the episode. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's uh, th- that'll be it for the for that section, though. Um, definitely let us know if you have any questions, um, comments, or anything as well. Um, we're always appreciated, and uh, so you can check uh, out any of our social media platforms, like on Instagram, Facebook, anything. It's all Core Consult RX. You can reach us on any of those. Um, you can also email us. Um, all three of our emails will be in the show notes and um, you can text us directly if you want to go that route and um, uh, we will get back to you as as quickly as we can and if we haven't responded in the past uh, try us again I it's definitely not on purpose but uh, um, all three of us are pretty busy so we try to do our best but we definitely stuff slips through so please don't take uh Take that personally. Um, ready, ready to again. We'll, we'll do our best to get back to you. If you want more like structured, uh, you know, material and not our off on different random trails uh, podcast format, then check out Patreon. Um, we have PowerPoint slides and, and more standard like lecture format on on that on various pharmacotherapy, disease state management, and uh, it's it's like three dollars a month, so it's a pretty decent. Uh, review of course for the for the price if i do say so myself <laughs> but uh check that out and you can always just sign up for a month and then immediately quit and steal all the content off there if you really wanted to there's that option there's that shortcut and uh anyways we'll see you guys uh on the next episode and thanks again to freece.com for continuing to partner with us we really appreciate those guys check out their website if you haven't already all right see you